You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Hey everybody, Mark here. There's no new episode this week, so I'm taking the opportunity to replay last year's Christmas episode. In part because the last Christmas episode didn't have much holiday cheer, but mostly because this one is my wife's favorite. So if you haven't heard it, or haven't heard it lately... Or if you need one last taste of Christmas before the terrible, joyless winter takes hold, this one's for you. Before we go to it, though, I'd like to point out a couple of other shows you might like. The first is Chad the Podcast. Chad the Bird is a regular fixture at the Paper Machete, which listeners will remember as the show where I record most of our live episodes. Chad had me on to talk about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman a few weeks ago, so if you'd like a taste of that, go find it. Secondly, we are a part of Hub and Spoke, as you well know. Uh, their latest episode uh, to come out of the collective is an episode of Iconography, which is also an episode of Soonish. So it's two birds with one stone, two Chad the birds with one stone, even uh, about two famous iconic bridges and their fates. Finally, I want to play you a quick promo for That Was Genius. It's a great, quirky little show that, if you listen to The Constant, I think you'll appreciate. I'm going to turn things over real quick to Tom and Sam, and then we'll get back to the episode. Hello, and welcome to That Was Genius. My name's Sam. And my name's Tom. And we are two friends from university who now live on completely the opposite sides of the world, but are still united through a love of history and stupid accents and silly jokes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> to be honest, we mentioned history first, but it really does come a very distant third. <laughs> that Was Genius is a history podcast in which Tom and I exchange stories on a theme each week. We decide the theme a week beforehand, but everything else that happens is a surprise. Hence the stupid jokes and the bad accents. So what can you expect from That Was Genius? Well, we discuss all kinds of things. Erogenous garden gnomes who somehow became classical gods. <laughs> yep. Thou who wickedly designest and scarce forbearest from robbing my garden shall be sodomised with my twelve-inch phallus. But if so severe and unpleasant punishment shall not avail, I will strike higher. <laughs> <laughs> so he basically, this tiny garden gnome 
<laughs> overlooks a garden and just sexually assaults anyone who comes anywhere near. And anyone who comes anywhere near, even if they're not looking to steal anything, he just stares at them and says, I'm going to fuck you if you come any closer. <laughs> you don't want to know what I'm going to do to you. <sighs> also, when he says, I'll go higher, does that mean he's just going to go more than 12 inches or does that mean he's going to dick slap you in the face? <laughs> He's going to get again, teabagged again, by an angry gnome. <laughs> you probably think you're being vulgar and silly. Hmm, wait. And Mexican generals with no legs. <laughs> Good choice. I'm going to put it out there. Mexico has a slightly difficult history. <laughs> oh, my Lord. But it doesn't end there, Tom, because in 1847, Santa Ana was having lunch during the Battle of... Quero Gordo during the US-Mexican War when American troops surprised him. With an extra leg? <laughs> well, well <laughs> he he ran away being as he was no, not he actually didn't. a very good no, general. He he <laughs> Sam, he cannot run away. <laughs> <laughs> it's not physically possible. Shit, the sources don't add up. <laughs> okay. He Correction. He away on his one leg. <laughs> Correction. American troops surprised him and he hopped off. You are in fact correct, Tom, because the soldiers who'd surprised him captured his two false legs. <laughs> one of which one of which was paraded around American country fairs as a freak show and people would pay people would pay a cent or a dime to see it. The other one, Tom, the other of his legs was used as a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's Tom's favourite from the vaults. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you think that was genius, is up your street. Oh, I say, I bet it is. Up your alley. Do subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. We have new episodes every Wednesday night slash Thursday morning, depending on where you are in the world. So, do give us a follow, give us a like, and if you like what you hear, tune in again. It was the winter of 1979 when Carolyn first saw the movie that changed her life. Then 39, that life was not an easy one. She grew up poor in Los Angeles, her father a manager at a local Safeway, her mother already struggling with early-onset Alzheimer's from the time Carolyn was a small child. When she was 12, her mother succumbed to the disease. And less than three years of struggling, absentee, single parenting later, her father, too, died in a car accident. Orphaned, she was given over to a distant aunt who spirited her away from L.A. to a tiny town in rural Missouri. Her new family were Missouri Synod Lutherans who forbade all dancing, singing, and movies. I don't think they believed in laughing, either, Carolyn once said. Her aunt cut her off from all connections to her old life. She was never to see her Los Angelino friends, teachers, or fellow students again. And certainly not her co-workers. Her new family wasn't super keen on her getting an education, either. But she was a gifted child, and a number of her teachers did what they could to help her get into college, where she trained in medicine, eventually landing a med-tech job outside of Kansas City. Her first marriage ended in divorce. And shortly after that, her ex-husband, father to her two daughters, died in a hunting accident. Her second husband brought three children to the marriage, and soon he and Carolyn added two more, a son and a daughter. 
1979, when she first saw the movie that changed her life, she had no way of knowing that that son would die by suicide ten years later, or that her husband would follow him three years after that, cancer in his case. But it probably wouldn't have surprised her to hear. She was sort of set up for these kinds of things, you understand. She once told an interviewer, My life has never been wonderful. But the movie, flickering away in the corner of her eye in 1979, begged to differ. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's very special Christmas episode, It's Wonderful. The Greatest Gift was a short story, just around 3,000 words. The idea came to Philip von Dorenstern one night in 1938, but it took him until 1943 to finish writing it. Stern was a Civil War historian and an editor, but still he couldn't get it in print. So, after five years toiling away on writing it and another spent submitting it to publishers, he decided he would give up on any larger ambitions he had for the piece and send it off as a Christmas card to friends and family. It was, after all, a Christmas story, even if Stern himself claimed not to think so. He mailed out 200 copies, one of which landed in the hands of David Hempstead, a producer at RKO Pictures. Hempstead thought it was a charming story and showed it to his friend, Cary Grant. Yes, that Cary Grant. The biggest film star of the time, Carey was taken by the Christmas pamphlet and told RKO he wanted to star in a movie version. The studio purchased the film rights from Stern for $10,000, high price at the time. But after several assigned screenwriters took unsuccessful passes at it and Grant's attention moved on, the project was shelved. That didn't sit well with studio head Charles Corner, who disliked the idea of taking a total bath on the endeavor. So he slicked over another producer for the newly established Liberty Pictures, convincing his rival to buy up the rights and the three failed drafts for the price for which RKO had acquired it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Frank Capra needed a win. His early film career was meteoric, sensational. He'd won Best Director at the 1934 Oscars for It Happened One Night, the first movie to ever win Best Director, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay adapted. He got a second Best Director award for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and a third for You Can't Take It With You. That was three Best Director statuettes in four years, and two other nominations besides for Lady for a Day and, in 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But then the war had broken out, and Capra enlisted. 
Between 1941 and 1945, Capra did his filmmaking for the armed forces, producing the documentary propaganda series, Why We Fight. In 1946, Capra formed Liberty Pictures with a couple of other directors who, like him, were sick of studio meddling and eager to get their post-war careers back on track. And Capra thought the greatest gift looked like just the ticket. He bought the rights off of RKO for 10000 and set to work with his writing team, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, cobbling together a workable gem from RKO's failed rough. But Capra wasn't content with Goodrich and Hackett. He secretly brought in another screenwriter, Joe Swirling, and a punch-up team that included the inestimable Dorothy Parker to further fix up the script in violation of WGA union rules. That was bad enough, but Capra managed to piss off Goodrich on a whole nother level, condescending to her and referring to her as my dear woman in the room. Between the professional and personal slights, Goodrich and Hackett had enough. After learning from Swirling about his involvement, their agent called up asking when they'd be finished. Francis said, we're finished right now. And the two walked off the project, never to work with Capra again. Capra also managed to burn bridges with his composer, Dimitri Tomkin, who he'd worked with on his six previous films. Tomkin composed a dark and avant-garde score for what he saw as a dark and avant-garde screenplay, but Capra found it too depressing and butchered it to the point that Tomkin, too, walked off and cut ties with Capra. It was turning into a costly film, both financially, professionally, and personally. But it'd all be worthwhile if It's a Wonderful Life turned out to be the hit Capra thought it could be. If you somehow haven't seen it, you should stop right here and remedy that. Hell, you know, even if you have seen it, it's still a pretty good idea to give it another watch. Because It's a Wonderful Life, it's a fantastic film. Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, hard to beat that lineup. Not to mention the town of Bedford Falls, a fictional town that just has to be real. It's so lived in, it's so complete. You can practically crane your neck around the side of the screen and see the side streets, the gardens, the oak trees beyond the camera's gaze. And the story, the meaning, the moral, that any person, unremarkable aside from their goodness, has value, can contribute positively to the world well beyond their modest grasp. That everyone has doubts, deep and primordial. That everyone has darkness, pitch and inky. That everyone can look out into the mid-distance and see the heights of their own unexplored potential and possibilities. And yet, no matter how short we fall, if we care for and love others, that the invisible hand of our benign influence gives a value to our existence beyond what we'd get a chance to fully reckon with. Capra didn't think of It's a Wonderful Life as a Christmas movie. It was meant to be released in May and was only moved up to a December release because RKO's big tentpole was behind schedule. But today, it is hard to imagine a Christmassier movie than It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra staked the future of his new studio on it. He'd raised friends and partners. But can you imagine a better gamble than betting on the success 
of It's a Wonderful Life. It's as good a bet as you could possibly hope to make. But you should never confuse a good bet for a sure thing. When it released in December 1947, It's a Wonderful Life was a flop. Reviews were all right, mixed. The Daily News liked it. The Times thought Stewart and Reed were great, but that the film itself was sentimental. Manny Farber at The New Republic said that Capra always takes an easy, simple-minded path that doesn't give much credit to the intelligence of the audience. The New Yorker called it baby talk. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, including another Best Director nod for Capra, but it only won a Special Technical Achievement statuette. The movie got a different kind of attention, though, from J. Edgar Hoover. It's a Wonderful Life, released right as the wave of anti-communist hysteria was beginning to lash against the rocks of the entertainment industry, and a crew of red sniffers was going through Hollywood looking for dissident films. This team included the, ahem, novelist and cough-cough philosopher Anne Rand, who appears to have helped to identify It's a Wonderful Life as Stalinist propaganda. The secret FBI report read, in part, With regards to the picture It's a Wonderful Life, Redacted stated in substance that the film represents rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, in accordance to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. In addition, Redacted stated that, in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despicable characters. All of this might have come as a surprise to Capra, who was a Republican and secretly worked with the CIA to ferret out communists at international film festivals. But more important than the federal scrutiny, or the award snubs, or the critical barbs, It's a Wonderful Life bombed at the box office, losing $525,000 for the studio. Capra's dream of an artist-run studio outside the reaches of artless producers died months later. Capra's career pretty well dropped off with it. He released State of the Union in 1948 to virtually no fanfare. Two more flops followed in 1951 and 1952, Riding High and Here Comes the Groom, respectively. From there, Capra moved into directing industrials and high school science shorts. His final piece, Rendezvous in Space, was commissioned to play as an advertisement for a chemical and aeronautics firm at the 1964 World's Fair. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I love movies, and music, and books, art, and what I want to be true is that the truly great ones rise to the top on their own accords and merits. 
Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is one of the greatest musical compositions ever written and one of the most famous, too, and it's easy to assume a causatory relationship there, that nothing so great could ever be forgotten. But that's wrong. In 1972, Bob's Merrill Publishing released The Stones of Summer by Dow Mossman. The novel was hailed as one of the finest works of American literature in decades. But Bob's Merrill soon filed for bankruptcy, and Mossman was hospitalized for a nervous breakdown. The book disappeared into the mists. We know about The Stones of Summer only because of the very heavy lifting of Mark Moskowitz, who picked a dusty copy off of his shelf and created a 2002 documentary out of his efforts to track down Mossman and get his masterpiece republished. How many great yet forgotten books languish without a successful documentary to save them? One of the most upsetting thoughts I can think is that the greatest song is out there somewhere, forever unheard. The greatest painting, unseen. The greatest film, unappreciated. These thoughts are made more disturbing by the strong probability that they are right. Capra thought It's a Wonderful Life was one of his best films. His greatest, according to his own estimation, was State of the Union, which I had never even heard of until I read him saying so. I'm guessing you probably don't know it either. And that's how it would have been for It's a Wonderful Life, too. The movie was ignored, neglected, and forgotten in the years after its release. Liberty Pictures was sold off to Paramount, who left it in their vaults until it was purchased by M&A Alexander in 1955. When Alexander folded, ownership passed on to National Telefilm Associates. This was all just boring, clerical gobbledygook. Studios fail, others acquire their properties. When they took over Alexander's portfolio, It's a Wonderful Life was so forgotten that NTA didn't even realize they'd bought it. Lucky thing, too. Because if NTA had known the film belonged to them in 1974, they would have renewed the copyright, and you and I would probably have never found it. But they didn't. And so It's a Wonderful Life passed into the public domain. That meant that television networks big and small across the country and across the world could air a Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore Christmas movie for free. And holy mackerel, did they air it. In the late 70s, Goodrich and Hackett, the maligned screenwriters, described leapfrogging from one channel. What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. To another. Look, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. Yeah, yeah, I know. You told me that. To another. I suppose it would been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. To another. I want to live again. I want to live again landing at each stop upon a different showing. It was all wonderful, all the time. And that's how Carolyn, in 1979, came to first and finally watch what had, in four short years, 
gone from forgotten failure to indelible Christmas classic. One of her kids was flipping through the dials when she caught it out of the corner of her eye. It's a Wonderful Life has gone on to become Carolyn's favorite movie. She's seen it hundreds, maybe thousands of times. But her first reaction that winter wasn't about how good it was. Instead, she said, That's me. I'm Zuzu. Before the death of her second husband and her first, before her son's death or birth or her other children, before her beastly aunt and before Missouri and the car crash and the Alzheimer's, Carolyn Grimes got some childhood jobs to help the family make ends meet. She brought in about 75 bucks a week as an actor, featuring in 16 films, including, of course, It's a Wonderful Life, though she never saw it. Her mother feared it would make her boastful to watch herself on the silver screen, and her aunt thought it was all sinful from head to tail. She'd seen other of her features in the pursuant 30 years, alongside Cary Grant and Loretta Young in The Bishop's Wife, in Irving Berlin's Blue Skies with Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire, and Rio Grande, one of the westerns John Ford made with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. Better-known movies, yet not quite iconic movies. But here she was, in Jimmy Stewart's arms, giving what was fast becoming one of the most famous endings in film history. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Soon the reporters came knocking, and Grimes gave a couple local interviews. Then the fan mail started. After the passing of her son and husband and a bad market that left her hard up again, the fans started sending money to help her. She began attending film festivals, giving national interviews, signing autographs, chairing panels. She released a line of Zuzu dolls and Zuzu Bailey's It's a Wonderful Life cookbook. The temptation to draw the parallels between woman and art is strong. Almost as strong as the instinct to touch this sentimental plane in for a hard, fast landing. But you can do that stuff for yourself. It's Christmas, after all. The time for telling stories about the power of modest goodness and the importance of realizing how important we all are. She once said to an interviewer, Maybe that's what makes the film so important for me and a lot of other people. George is suffering terribly in the movie. You can just see it. He's in Martini's cafe and saying to himself, God, I'm not a praying man, but please show me the way. Gosh, it makes me cry, she said. It's not a Christmas movie, not a movie about Jesus or Bethlehem or anything religious like that. It's about how we have to face life with a lot of uncertainty, and even though nobody hears it, most of us ask God to show us the way when things get really hard. Carolyn told the interviewer, My life has never been wonderful. But the movie begs to differ. That is a wrap for 2019 and for Season 6. Season 7 will begin in two weeks, on January 14th, and we're starting it off with a bang. For the last two years, I've been researching a big mess of a story, which will be delivered in 
three or maybe four, maybe even five parts. It's got a little bit of everything that I like about making this show. There's maritime disaster, bad scientists, harebrained schemes, more doomed inventions than you can shake a stick at, and a Chicago mystery that has remained unsolved for more than a hundred years. Until now. Maybe. Probably not. But here's hoping. I've never done something this big before, and I've never tried to answer a question this vexing before. I'm really excited to bring this to you, and I hope you'll enjoy the ride as much as I am. In order to get this thing the exposure it hopefully deserves, I'd like a little help. If you haven't yet rated and reviewed the show, please do so. Uh, it'll help other people find us in time for the big event. Then go find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the constant podcast and on Twitter where we're at constant podcast and do me the biggest favor of all like and share these new episodes as they drop. Tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell anybody who you think might like it. And if you'd like to support the show financially, go to patreon.com slash the constant and pledge your support. Over on our Discord channel, I'm going to be asking for help in trying to solve this riddle. If you want to get in on that game, a $5 per episode donation gets you to the channel. Thanks so much. From Chicago, Illinois, where in November of 1915, a diver discovered a submarine at the bottom of the Chicago River. It was 40 feet long and at least a decade old. No one knows who built it, where it came from, or whose remains were inside. But maybe we can find out next time on part one of The Fool Killer. 